how does a cow respond to those changes? I mean, that clearly changes over time. As we produce cows that can produce more milk, that makes them less able to regulate their physiology to deal with heat stress. On the other hand, we can modify the cow physiologically, and I know you guys have been doing that, or nutritionally, so that uh, they're better able to cope with heat stress, or we can modify them genetically. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds in the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. DSM and AB Vista. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Joe McFadden, and this is my first episode, if you can believe that. Joining me today is Dr. Peter Hansen, the L.E. Red Larson Professor of Animal Sciences at University of Florida. Dr. Lance Baumgard, the Norman L. Jacobson Endowed Professor in Dairy Nutrition in the Department of Animal Science at Iowa State University. Dr. Augustine Rios, Associate Professor of Dairy Cattle Nutrition in the Department of Animal Science at the University of Tennessee. Welcome, gentlemen, to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Joe. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. All right, I'm going to start with a real simple question. I want to know, what did you do this summer? And don't say that you worked all the time, okay, because I know that that always happens. I want to know what you did that was fun, that was different, that you, that will be a long-term memory uh, for you. What did you do? I went to Italy and then got heat stressed. <laughs> you went to Italy. What did you do? Just I had a great time getting heat stressed. For work? Did you went there for work? Yeah. Though? Yeah, it took yeah, time. For work and for, uh, we had a vacation as well. And my daughter got engaged there, so. Oh, uh, that's wow. nice. That's nice. Wow. Um, beautiful weather, I'm sure, um, to, for a wedding. But just engaged, just engaged. Just engaged. Oh, just engaged. Augustine, what did you do? I also, I think I'm going to follow the lines, uh, Pete's lines as well. I visited uh, in-laws in Spain. So we we traveled there. We had a good time there. And the weather was not that bad because they live in the north part of Spain, which isn't that hot. So it was hot, but uh, way, way milder than it would be here in Knoxville. Okay. Both more travel. It's time with family. Lance? Well, in between running children to soccer and hockey and violin and gymnastics, um, my wife is from the western part of Ireland, so we spent a couple of beautiful weeks in County Galway, and um, so we go there, try to get there as often as possible. So it's a great place to visit. Wow, three three gentlemen who like to travel the world here. I like it. Um, you know, from my end, uh, I sold my house and I bought a new house. I actually bought a farm. <laughs> if you believe it or not, <laughs> I don't know what I'm getting myself into, um, but I finally convinced my wife to. Uh, to, to make the leap. And so we did it. Uh, we actually moved in last week. So that was a, a big adventure. How many dairy cows do you have? <laughs> no, 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 not dairy cows. Uh, it's a 
65 acre place right on the border of Ithaca and Dryden. It's got, I think my first endeavor is going to be maple, if you believe it or not. Maple syrup. Uh, ma yeah, 1,200 trees, fully operational uh, sugar house. So looking forward to uh, giving that a shot. I'm looking forward for a free, free samples for a free bottle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, I, I invited you all here to this roundtable because you have two things in common. And the first thing is you're all pleasant people to talk to. And I thought you'd be uh, entertaining for the audience. And the second topic is that you all study heat stress. And you primarily study heat stress in dairy cattle. And so I'm going to start with a very, uh, I think, simple question here. Put us all in the right frame of mind. Uh, realizing that not everybody that listens to these podcasts is an expert like yourself. But what is heat stress? How do you define it? Um, is there a simple way to define it? I define it as the... I teach a course in environmental physiology, so I have to define a lot of these things. I define heat stress as the sum of forces external to an animal that act to displace its body temperature from the ground state, the regulated state. So it's something external to the animal that uh, has the potential to disrupt its physiology, depending on the magnitude of the effect and the ability of the animal to regulate its body temperature. That's a classic, uh, great definition. Of course, if you're a dairy farmer, though, it might just simply be at what strain causes a reduction in profitability, right? So I think there could be mild heat stress going on that doesn't cost someone money. So I guess it depends if you're a university professor or if you own dairy cows. Well, you, you or maple trees. Yeah, yeah, maple trees, yeah. Yeah. So you you mentioned mild. I mean, is there ways to I guess define or, or, or break down the severity of heat stress? Oh yeah, absolutely. There are you, you can you, you can take a look at the different charts that are out there. They all have limitations as per how these charts were developed and the formulas used to develop these charts. And you can have mild heat stress or severe heat stress or extreme heat stress, depending upon uh, the temperature and humidity of the environment in which these animals live. So, I mean, is there is this something that um, can change with time? And I'm saying as, as cow genetics changes over time, is how we define heat stress today, is that going to be the same definition 10 years from now? Or was it, or was it a different definition 10 years ago? Um, is this a sort of a fluid sort of concept that's going to change with time because of changes in, in environment, but changes in genetics, perhaps? No, I mean, I don't know. I, I think heat stress is something external to the cow. So it, 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 it's what it is. It is, you know... How hot it is, how how high the humidity is, how much solar radiation there is, what the wind speed is, those are constants. How does a cow respond to those changes? I mean, that clearly changes over time. As we produce cows that can produce more milk, that makes them less able to regulate their physiology to deal with heat stress. On the other hand, we can modify the cow physiologically, and I know you guys have been doing that, or nutritionally, so that uh, they're better able to cope with heat stress, or we can modify them genetically so that what 
would be a lethal heat stress for one cow, might be a mild heat stress for another cow. The stress is the same, but how the animal responds to it depends upon the cow's genetics, depends on her physiology, her nutrition. So I think feel good actually about uh, our prospects for being able to deal with heat stress as a dairy industry that we're learning a lot more about uh, how the cow deals with heat stress and coming up with strategies to help the cow overcome the negative effects of heat stress. In, in addition to everything Pete just said, you also have the uh, different stages of acclimation, right? So a heat load that kills cows in uh, early June or late May, that same heat load would not probably kill cows at the end of August. Right, so so you have this this increase in basal heat production that Pete was mentioning, but you also have different stages of acclimation, which I think is is critically important when evaluating the negative consequences of heat stress. How how adapted are they? It's something we haven't studied actually as much as we should. But I mean, you're right. I agree. I mean, all these studies, it's sort of you give them a you know heat stress event in the last three days, two weeks, and it's con it's constant. We're not really looking at the highs and lows and as maybe a typical weather pattern might, it's not going to be that constant, you know, and you can get, especially as you get these shifts and really hot events and all of a sudden, you know, it gets cool again. What happens to that cow in between those episodes? And is she better off in the long run? You know, in terms of the biology behind sort of why heat stress cows make less milk, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Um, certainly, a lot, of, a lot of effort that's been focused on this over the last several decades, but if we can try to summarize sort of the key endocrine changes, the key changes in metabolism um, that the cow experiences to uh, reduce milk production, can, what, what would they be? Well, the, I think the first big issue with reduction in productivity is a, a reduction in feed intake. They're likely reducing their feed intake to survive the thermal load, but that's probably only about half, you know. So a portion of the reduction is due to reduction in feed intake, and then there's a, a plethora of other physiological changes that occur, some of it's pathological, to uh, help describe or explain the other portion of reduced productivity. And there's a lot that goes into that other, other portion. And what can you do to get cows to eat more? Keep them cool. <laughs> yeah, that, that's quite a bit of information out there. Uh, in terms of feeding management of, of these animals. And uh, I think it's, I think you all agree with, with what I want to say. It's pretty much dated information and old information. And uh, just because it's old, it's not necessarily mean that it's bad, but it doesn't have a significant amount of data to back it up. And a lot of it is association and just assumptions of different responses in metabolism due to different nutrients. For instance, fat, administration of fat and carbohydrates or fermentable carbohydrates, stuff like that, as a mean to alleviate some of these decreasing feed intake. So certainly I think uh, it is hard to do uh, conclusive analysis on, on feed intake and nutrient intake in heat stress animals, in heat stress lightening calves. Just the nature of this, these studies are significant burdens. And, but, but I think that's, that's an area that, that uh, certainly will, will, will provide uh, more information, and more needed information to make decisions on farm. 
And in terms of those endocrines that you were describing, Joe, um, I think Lance and others have done work in, in, the, in the area of carbohydrates and lipid metabolism alteration and heat stress. So certainly we, I think there is need to do more research in that area. And that's not only unique for lactating cows, other species have shown the shift in uh, metabolism, energy metabolism, and uh, there is a need to link uh, feeding management to changes in metabolism to properly feed these animals to mitigate some of these losses in production and, and, and probably reproduction too. I don't know. If- so let me ask you guys two questions that I've always wondered about. So if a cow's appetite goes down when she's hot, you know, just like our appetite goes down when we're hot, can can we change the energy density of the diet, like through lipid feeding or increased concentrate feeding, so that when she takes a bite of TMR, she's getting more energy than she would otherwise? That's one question. And secondly, if we could stimulate her to eat more, say pharmacologically, would that be good or would that just make it so difficult for her to regulate her body temperature that she'd be at risk of severe hyperthermia? I'll start with the second part of it. I agree with that. I think uh, it's not a good idea to try to push more feed in an animal that's already thermologically a challenge because of this metabolism of the animal, so just feeding, it's just fueling more, more, uh, more, more gas, if you will, to to the fire that is already there. So, uh, I think there are other means to, to, in my, from my perspective, I think the intervention ought to target uh, improvement in the nutrient utilization, more so the metabolism of the animal, the way these animals harvest energy out of fuels as opposed to feeding more in an animal that is deficient in the way the hand handles nutrients. That would be my perspective. Yeah, yeah I think those, that's kind of spot on. To your first question, Pete, yeah, these are not just in the dairy industry, of course, but in almost all animal industries, there are summer rations, and they typically have higher fat content in them, maybe a little bit higher protein. Uh, based upon the assumptions that we right, we want to maximize the nutrient intake of per every bite. And your second question, I think, is also spot on. If you force feed a severely heat stressed critter, they will die. Now, if you force feed an infected animal, now I was hoping to you know to go down this route a little bit because I think an immune activated animal and a heat stressed animal, there's so many uh, similar biological footprints of the two. I don't think it's a coincidence, but if you force feed a heat stress critter, they die. And if you force feed uh, an infected animal, they also die. So they're, they're going off feed for a damn good reason. Right, right. That's what I would have thought. You know, what can we learn about, I guess, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about that, how the dairy cows sort of suffers from a heat stress event more so than other domestic animals. What can we learn about those other animals in terms of how they cope Versus the cow. How do you compare apples to apples? I would say um, that's my first response to that question. Um, you know, other animals they they are able to cope. Say, for instance, uh, calves. You know, uh, 
Uh, I'm thinking about same species, but smaller in size, are able to cope with heat load way better than a lactating cow, just because of the size of the animal and the surface area of the animal. Um, so it's, I would say it's, it's hard to compare among different species. When you start teasing out the differences among these species, then it's, it's not as simple, at least from my perspective, not as simple as it is based on what I understand. Yeah, but, you know, I think uh, Pete is kind of, if you, let's just take three critters that we're all familiar with. The, the cow, obviously. <clears throat> then you have a horse. Now, a horse can tolerate a massive amount of heat. And um, because they're such great sweaters, right? They'll literally lather up a sweat. You can, and then you take a pig who doesn't sweat really at all. They have dysfunctional sweat glands. So the, the three, and then the cow is somewhere in the middle. Um, so what you know, Pete's working on at the slip gene, I think, has just an enormous amount of opportunity. If we can get the cow to sweat like a horse, or at least to sweat better. Right, and they'll be able to dissipate more heat via evaporation. Um, I just think there's a, an enormous amount of opportunity there. Yeah. So, Pete, I had a question on here: uh, breeding slick holstein cattle uh, for improved uh, heat tolerance. So, talk about that if you could. Uh, what's what's the biology behind that? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'll be yeah, very happy to do that. But um, you know, it's very interesting, right? Like the dairy cow is like a great example of how humans can modify animals to improve the efficiency of production of food for human beings. And, you know, the modern dairy cow has such a smaller carbon footprint in terms of uh, production of food for humans than the dairy cow in 1940 or the dairy cow in much of the world that's not been improved. So, you know, we should congratulate ourselves on that. And I think the modern dairy cow is a very humanely raised animal. But the consequence of producing so much milk is she produces tons of heat and metabolic heat. So that makes her very susceptible to heat stress. Uh, you know, I, one thing, if you select cows for resistance to heat stress genetically, you select for lower milk yield. So there are genes that are related to thermal tolerance independent of milk yield. But, you know, in, indirectly, we have selected cows to be more susceptible to heat stress. So so the slip gene is a um, naturally occurring mutation, very interesting, really, um, in the prolactin receptor gene. So prolactin receptor is very important protein for I think prolactin probably has at least 300 biological functions. So just about every organ is regulated by prolactin. So a mutation in the prolactin receptor, that's a pretty big deal. But if you look at uh, breeds of cattle in the Caribbean and South America, there's at least six mutations that have arisen in the prolactin receptor. So six different times in evolution, the prolactin receptor has been mutated and it causes a very short hair coat. And one of the roles of prolactin is to inhibit hair growth. So these so-called slick animals have a mutation in the prolactin receptor, causes them to have very short hair. And 
because they have short hair and they sweat more. They probably lose more heat via conduction and convection from the hair coat because it's shorter. And it's been shown over and over again, they regulate their body temperature uh, better than a half sib that didn't inherit the slick mutation. Is that mutation only on the sweat gland itself or is that throughout all the no, everywhere? So, I mean, that's one question, you know, what, what is the implications of that mutation for liver function, for immune function, for mammary gland function? Do they make as much milk? Yeah, I don't know. I think they do, but we really need more data on that. The work we've done, they, which is with few numbers of cows, uh, yeah, they produce as much milk in the winter as animals without the slick mutation. And in the summer, they produce a little bit more milk. And in Puerto Rico, Slick Holsteins produce a little bit more milk than um, animals without the mutation. But And we've looked at gene expression in the liver. It's mostly the same in Slick and non-Slick Holsteins, but a little different. Um, you know, a few genes were differentially expressed. So we do need to understand the mutation, but it cannot be a dilatory mutation or it wouldn't have gotten selected for six different times in cattle evolution. So the gene got put into Holsteins accidentally. I think in the island of Puerto Rico, the gene is quite frequent in Holstein populations, probably because the Holsteins that came to the island were bred with local cattle, which had the mutation. And then here in Florida, um, a dairy farmer got some free centipole semen, which centipoles have the slick mutation. So just to see what they look like, he bred his Holsteins to centipole bulls. And lo and behold, half of them had really short hair coat. And Tim Olson at the University of Florida identified that phenotype and bred the animals back to Holstein since the 1980s and uh, retained that slick mutation. And, you know, now that same cross has been done in New Zealand to produce slick-haired Holstein, slick-haired jerseys, slick-haired Holstein jersey crosses. And, you know, gene-edited slick animals have been produced Holstein, Jersey, Angus. So, yeah, the gene is getting a lot of interest. And it does definitely allow animals to regulate their body temperature better during heat stress. There's less data, but it probably reduces the impact of heat stress on milk yield in the summer. And maybe reproduction. At least in Puerto Rico, the Slick Holsteins have a shorter uh, calving interval than animals without the mutation. So, you know, what I would say is it's very cool, <laughs> but there's probably other mutations that we haven't discovered yet that exist in Brahmins, other adapted breeds of cattle. And we should bring those into the Holstein as well. You know, I want to, you, you mentioned, um, reproduction there for a moment. And I actually, I was reading one of your papers, Pete, and I'm just sort of going to quote you. Okay. 
Um, and that, that quote was, the increased heat production caused by milk synthesis makes lactating females less able to regulate body temperature and more sensitive to the anti-fertility effects of heat stress than non-lactating females. I guess I just wanted to just go into that a little bit more for me to help me understand what those anti-fertility effects of heat stress are and what, what, how can we sort of combat them this would be my next question. Yeah, I, I want to. I want to change that statement a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can't retract the paper. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, it's true. Animals that produce more heat, animals that produce more milk, are less able to regulate their body temperature than animals that uh, produce less milk. And a higher body temperature causes infertility. Uh, oocytes very susceptible to. Elevated body temperature, the very early embryo is susceptible to elevated body temperature. The reason I want to modify that statement a little bit uh, probably relates to some of the work Lance has done and, and um, other people. We did an ex a study last summer down in uh, South Florida. So we looked at body temperature regulation in Holstein and Brown Swiss. So the Brown Swiss produced less milk than the Holstein. And during the summer, Holsteins have higher body temperature than Brown Swiss, like you'd expect. So then we looked at summer winter differences in milk yield. And we reasoned because the Holsteins have a higher body temperature, they will experience a greater reduction in milk yield in the summer. But we didn't find that. The percent reduction in milk yield was numerically actually higher in the Brown Swiss than in the Holstein. So even though the Holstein are less able to regulate their body temperature, at least on this one farm, and, you know, maybe it's just specific to that herd of cows that have been selected naturally for thermal tolerance for a long time. Um, but at least on that one farm, Holsteins produce more milk, less able to regulate their body temperature, but they don't experience any greater reduction in milk yield. So maybe some of the things that like Lance is talking about and others are talking about in terms of uh, changes in gut permeability in response to heat stress or some of the endocrine changes in response to heat stress. You know, maybe there's some differences between Holsteins and Brown Swiss that allow the Holsteins to, they still experience a drop in milk production, but maybe not as much as you'd expect because of their increased body temperature, because there's other things different about them. So, you know, maybe that's true for fertility as well. No doubt, the higher the body temperature, the lower the fertility. But, you know, there may be differences between animals and how they respond to higher body temperature. That's very interesting, Pete. It's very, very similar to uh, what, we, what we've measured and reported upon in pigs. And uh, it has implications, of course, to genetic companies when they're selecting sires, right? Is how how do you, what type of phenotype do you hang a hat on with regards to uh, genetics? Because in, in our experiments with pigs, it's the, the pigs that get the hottest during a heat stress event aren't necessarily the ones that do the poorest 
from a feed intake and average daily gain perspective. Yeah, so it's just it, it kind of fits perfectly with what you're saying is um, ultimately the producer, the farmer, wants an animal that can produce, right, and uh, more in- more interested in economically important phenotypes rather than body temp. Yeah, I mean, I've changed my own thinking on that. Yeah. I, I think adding on to adding add to that a little bit when you look at when you look at the data from fifty or sixty years ago. Um, I was just reading Stan Curtis' textbook, and uh, this is known for a long, the fact that the relationship between physiological parameters and uh, productive parameters aren't necessarily linear or not even not even a relationship at all. It's been known for years, so it's one of the dogmas that we still see out there, and we have to we have to uh, make sure that people understand or. Uh, at least explain our point of view to make sure that the hottest animal doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a more severe effect when it comes to production. And I don't know, piggyback on what Pete was saying a moment ago, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've noticed a lot of variability in, in our responses, uh, particularly physiological responses in, in animals and heat of stress compared to non-heat of stress or thermonutrient animals, and in, in some animals, you know, they get, so talking about cows, 100, 120 breaths per minute or, or say 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And they're just, they're just having a great time. They're just laying down. They're just eating. They're, they're not suffering as much. And, and animals that under the same conditions don't even, you know, increase a few, uh, one degree, you know, if you will, in, you know, just 65, 70 breaths per minute. So, there was individual response to the same heat stress uh, treatment. It's amazing. So obviously, I mean, at least in my mind, it has to be some genetic component that goes beyond the ability to the animal to sweat and, 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 and cool off quicker. I think it is something else, um, maybe hormonally, uh, maybe, you know, uh, like, uh, immune, immune response to to different to different stimuli and things like that that goes beyond the general idea of uh, it's part of it, right? It's part of the response, but I think we have to we have to look more beyond the, the normal thermoregulatory mechanisms that uh, allow the animal to cope with uh, regulate body temperature. Well, let's let's dive into the. Um... You know, you, I think you mentioned uh, immunity, and it's been b- b- discussed by both of you. Uh, what, you know, that leaky gut buzzword that I think Lance coined so many years ago, <laughs> uh, maybe others, I'm sure, before him. But I guess where, where are we at in terms of the, the gut permeability part of this story? I mean, my lab certainly has tried to catch up with, with others in this area, and we just had a paper published looking at total tract gut permeability in lactating cows. And, and we, we showed that, um, you know, by day three after a heat stress event, um, they develop increases, increased total tract permeability, and it remains for two weeks. But when you look at animals that were pear-fed, um, that response wasn't so rapid. It was, it was more delayed. Um, you know, I guess I want to hear from, from, from you, Lance, in terms of, how much of an impact does 
um, a leaky gut scenario have on on milk production? I read your paper closely. It's a great paper, right? Because it's really the first time that's been demonstrated conclusively in, in dairy cows. You've all assumed it's going on in dairy cows, but your paper really uh, solidified that. And it's been shown in pigs, rodents, humans, right? This is a highly concerned, goats, highly concerned response amongst hyperthermia. And so, uh, yeah, our group, I'm maybe a little biased, but we, we're pretty strong believers that this leaky gut is a, is a key, plays a key role, right? The, the gut becomes permeable, you get infiltration of probably thousands of different antigens, maybe tens of thousands of different antigens now through this permeable gut wall, and you have an immune response. That immune response is very energetically and amino acid-wise very expensive. And of course, main an activated immune system now becomes the highest priority for any animal, not just the lactating dairy cow. So synthesizing muscle, milk, a baby, whatever, wool becomes de-emphasized and mounting this immune response becomes a, a very high priority. So yeah, we, we think it's it's pretty central, right? To the this other Remember earlier we talked about reduction in feed intake? There's this other portion that's not related to reduced feed intake. And, and uh, that's why I mentioned earlier, I think the, the, simil, the, the physiological footprint of heat stress versus the physiological footprint of just simply immune activation could be mastitis, metritis, pneumonia. I don't think it really matters. These two footprints are almost identical, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Essentially, a heat-stressed cow is, a, is an, an immune-activated cow. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com because animal health deserves a healthier approach. So I know people ask me all the time about the microbiome and I'm not a microbiome guy. I, I say that all the time and I, I'm not going to be that guy. Uh, it's nearly impossible for me to try to wrap my head around uh, the, the biological implications have a, of, of, the, of the microbiome in the cow at the lower gut, especially, but I guess I want to hear from others that maybe be a little bit more confident in terms of what what role does it play? Are there are there obviously endotoxin? Everybody talks about LPS, okay, but are there other sort of metabolites perhaps that are gut derived, microbial derived metabolites that could be potentially influencing gut barrier um, or the immune system, immune activation uh, um, that we're not paying attention to it? But we should. You know, Dave Beattie and um, Jill Davidson did all these experiments where they were exercising cows. And I think people used to laugh at them. But uh, there's an old, old paper from the 80s, I think from uh, Hale's lab, where they exercised sheep. And the sheep were more resistant to heat stress because they had a increased cardiac output. So the reduction in blood flow to the gut was reduced. 
the reduction in blood flow to the gut during heat stress was reduced because they had a greater cardiac output. So, yeah, I think, you know, what Lance is talking about is got a lot of relevance for responses to heat stress. So there's probably ways to modify gut integrity or modify blood flow to minimize uh, some of the effects. And of course, if the gut is leaky, LPS comes out, which causes hyperthermia. Exactly. We did an experiment several years ago after I read that paper on the sheep where we gave banamine during heat stress to see if we could lower the hyperthermia, which did not work. <laughs> but but I think there's, you know, it's a new way to think about how heat stress is affecting cows and other animals. I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because we did a similar project where we gave it uh, right after calving, and it was it was kind of a train wreck as well. Um, you know, but to your question, Joe, about the microbiome, I'm also not uh, a big microbiome guy, but uh, there's a lot of things made by microbes that have that that have potentially pathogenic uh, capabilities, ethanol. Uh, these uh, amines that are made from amino acid fermentation. I think there's a lot of things, not a, a lot of noxious compounds created during an altered fermentation that potentially has negative consequences to barrier function. Yeah, you, you. I, I, I'm also not a microbiome person by any means, and but uh, but just looking at the literature, just reading some of the literature out there, <clears throat> you have the commensal microorganisms and the potential pathogenic microorganisms. So the disbalance of the dysbiosis, which is the equilibrium that uh, this, in which these microorganisms, microorganisms live in the GI, uh, leads to all these different alters metabolites or secondary metabolites that are produced by microbes and, and endogenous metabolites that are handled by commensal bacteria that are no longer there. So example of that, I think there's uh, uh, hepatic outputs of uh, different products that are handled by microorganisms in the gut that were not there, then then the, these this, uh, metabolites are not uh, functioning properly. So, so I think it's, there's more than just um, pathogenic microorganisms. Like Lance was saying, there are thousands and thousands of antigens, and they come in different forms, and in different forms of yeah, it's, it's, it's quite complex. Uh, I would refer to the studies in which they look at uh, the microbiome on, on pigs, on, on, on rodents uh, that are, you know, prone to obesity and with, with, with diets, high-fat diets, and, and, you know, how this uh, microbe, microbiome uh, play a role in, in developing obesity and diabetes. Um, so that's, that's, those, those studies are available. Of theirs, those kind of studies illustrate the point of importance of a healthy microbiome from a, from an animal standpoint. Uh, from the heat stress standpoint, I think there is a lot to 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 learn, and I don't know if if, if we 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 have the the tools to get there, but it's, it's certainly something that uh, that requires more research. Right, let's transition towards the end here, talking about potential solutions and sort of the, the cutting edge of the field. Um, I mean, there's been some interest. I know, Augustine, that you've looked at um, 
I think postbiotics. I think you did a calf study where you're looking at sort of dietary postbiotics. I mean, what is that? What are, what are postbiotics, and what did you what did you observe? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Um, so so I just want to allude it a little bit to these anti-inflammatory interventions that Pete and, and, and Lance was referring to. We we did a study. Uh, recently, in which we uh, we use dexamethasone as an anti-inflammatory intervention. Of course, dexamethasone has other consequences. It's a it's a potent anti-inflammatory drug, but it also has other other consequences to metabolism. Uh, but overall, we we found interesting results from the phenotype standpoint. Uh, the animals perform uh, fairly well on the heat stress conditions treated with dexamethasone, and they were comparable to the counterparts on the on the thermoneutral group, and these are calves. Uh, so, so this this molecule that this product that you Joe are referring to, it's has been shown to mitigate some of the inflammation that is going on in heat stress cows. So, we inflammation measured by acute concentration of acute phase proteins produced in the liver. Uh, so there are different ways to assess inflammation. So if you if you follow these acute phase proteins producing the liver on inflammatory insult, or inflammatory response, well, you can uh, you can yeah you can say that you're in the process of inflammatory response. So the the postbiotic is basically a, a product of uh, of yeast that has been fermented and harvested under control conditions, and, and these metabolites that come from these fungi are, are used to mitigate inflammation. And, and at least we think that that's part of the, part of the mechanism of action for, for this product. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the objective study was basically to control the inflammatory response or, or reduce the tone of the inflammatory response to... To mitigate the inflammatory response observed under heat stress conditions, um, and that appeared to actually had a, a significant positive response in in these animals. And, and we did a study in, in heat stress cows, and we also did a study on on heat stress calves. Um, so overall, depending upon the the variable you look at, so you know if it is heptoglobin or certain amyloid A, or depending on the problem of interest, overall you you see a response. In, in other words, a reduction of these um, acute phase proteins, and, and more importantly, we see uh, an improvement in performance. So whether the amelioration of the inflammatory response is responsible for the improvement in production remains to be seen. Uh, but there appears to be an association between the two. All right. There's one one possibility. Um, Lance, you presented at the ADSA annual meeting about zinc. Uh, what's the mode of action for zinc? Well, yeah, our, our group's been spending quite a bit of time trying to identify target molecules that can help improve gut integrity, and zinc is, is one of them. Um, and there's others, um, antioxidants and... How does zinc work? Well, that's a damn good question. I, 
I'm not 100% sure how it works, but it's been evaluated in multiple models, not so much on heat, um, but from a, like an irritable bowel Crohn's disease um, perspective. And, and human doctors have been using zinc as a method of improving gut integrity for a long time. How it works, it might just simply be uh, upregulating the heat shock proteins that then help anchor in these tight junction proteins in the, in the lateral side. I think we also need to just admit, though, that at the end of, as of right now, the best way to prevent heat stress is via modifying the microenvironment of the cow, right? Shade, evaporative cooling, and fans. Yeah, so I, people bring, people mention it all the time. And there was a study in Journal Dairy Science, I think, that tried to quantify sort of the improvement in performance that you could have with these with these strategies. And it's not complete, right? It's around the range of 60%, I think, is what I read. Um, and there's also concern there that some of these approaches are not necessarily helping the dairy industry become more sustainable. And so I think, I think there's challenges there, right, that we have to sort of face. Right. These are investments the producer has to, uh, capital investment the, the producer has to invest in. And, of course, in, in, in some developing regions of the world, they don't have the capital to do that. So we think we need to continue identifying and looking for dietary strategies that can help ameliorate the negative consequences of heat stress and continue looking at the genetic component like Pete is. And, um, but yeah, in North America and Europe where there's more resources still, that, that's, that should be a producer's first investment, right, is modifying the environment. Like I'm all for, I mean, my research is focused on things other than changing the environment of the cow. So I, I completely agree on the importance of doing that. But I will say, you know, here in Florida, Bob Collier always used to say when a cow dies and goes to hell, she goes to Okeechobee, <laughs> Florida. <laughs> it, it's very hot here. And um, cows today in Florida are much less affected by heat stress than when I got here in the 1980s even though they're producing more milk and even though it's hotter. And that's because of investments in facilities that cows are managed in housing that, you know, provides a lot of relief. So, yeah, is it sustainable? I guess that depends how you define that. Is it expensive? Yes. But, of course, we're in a country where milk price is high. You know, you can make that investment and get a good return. Sub-Saharan Africa, maybe it wouldn't be uh, cost-effective to invest that amount of money in facilities. So all the solutions, I think, need to be explored. But I think, you know, we really should feel good as an industry that we've, I don't want to say met the challenge of heat stress, but we have come a long way to providing people with tools to, and maybe sometimes a dairyman came up with the tools and then we studied them. <laughs> They work, but uh, you know, I think everything everything needs to be uh, looked at. If I may add to that, I think there is uh, work coming out of uh, Wisconsin, also showing um, the deficiencies in facilities across the U.S. Maybe Florida is ahead of the rest of the warmer uh, states in the South, um, but certainly there is deficiencies in the facilities in the current facilities to properly handle and prevent heat stress. So maybe, Joe, you were afraid to 
So think, for instance, a producer up north uh, that only faces heat stress two, three months uh, over the year. Uh, for that producer, maybe investing in, in, in proper cooling for two, three months of the year might not be a feasible option or, I don't know, I'm just uh, thinking out loud. So whatever, whatever the rationale behind these deficiencies, the deficiencies are real and, and there's people studying these, these deficiencies, whether it's insufficient airflow or, or, or facility design, what have you. Uh, other states uh, do face this uh, uh, facilities limitation to properly handle heat stress. Okay. You know, my final question is, I want to know where we got to go next. Like, what's the, what's the biggest uh, thing that excites you the most in terms of the science of the, the biggest potential for improvement? Um, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of different answers here. But, Pete, we'll start with you. Uh, where do we got to go next? Well, I mean, what excites me is the genetics. And uh, probably for a lot of reasons. But, you know, I live in Florida again. We have a lot of Brahmin cattle down here and Brahmin influence cattle. You can't help but look at them and see how resistant they are to heat stress to realize. And, and some of that's because they don't grow that much. They don't have big digestive tract. But but still, you, it just makes you realize there's a lot of genetic variation out there and how animals cope with the environment that we can exploit. I think uh, Pete is on to something here. I think uh, that genetic component is a is a it's probably going to provide um, opportunities to make uh, significant progress. Uh, in the meantime, because I don't work in that area, I will continue working on the other response associated with heat stress, which is metabolism and, and things of that nature, which I think um, also play a, a key role in the, in the overall response of a heat stressed animal. Well, I, I'm still going to keep targeting the gut um, and, and the gut barrier integrity of one for heat stress, but I also think that this hyperpermeal gut also explains some of our poorly transitioning dairy cows, transport stress, weaning stress, and a transcend species. So if we can identify a, a, a molecule that can do a good job at improving gut integrity, I think there's opportunity for it to transcend species and be a multi-trillion dollar product um, is there. Yeah, well, I... I will say that we will soon announce we've done two uh, transition cow studies here looking at total tract gut permeability, prepartum and postpartum, and um, there's some exciting data coming from that. I uh, hope to share that soon. Well, I want to thank the three of you for joining me today. Uh, this was certainly my first time given uh, being host for the Dairy Podcast Show. You were all uh, excellent uh, guests, and I thank you for your time. I look forward to see what uh, develops from your lab in the near future. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thanks a lot. Good seeing you guys again.